a little over 2,000 miles west of Pensacola, sitting on the cresting waves of the Pacific Coast, is one of the most iconic and historic attractions of the west coast of the United States. It's called the Santa Monica Pier. The original version of this pier opened in 1909 and has seen many different forms to its existence, holding amusement parks and amenities of all variety. It has had ups and downs throughout history, riding the waves of the Great Depression, World War II, and weather events. A West Coast competitor to the famous Coney Island in New York City, the Santa Monica Pier has evolved as a staple of classic California entertainment for over a century now. Today, you'll find a Ferris wheel, an aquarium, a Bubba Gump shrimp company, and a notable sign. It is notable for lovers of American history or pop culture history. That's because hidden amongst the bright colors and dazzling crowds of the Santa Monica Pier, the sign reads simply, 66, end of the trail. That's because right here, where the Santa Monica Pier sits in the southern region of California, is where Route 66 ends. Arguably the most famous road in American history, Route 66 is a 2,400-mile stretch of road that crosses through eight states and three time zones as it weaves across most of the North American continent's east-west expanse. What we call highways nowadays are interstates, massive elevated strips of asphalt that cut through this country and east-west-north-south rivers. That project didn't come about until the 1950s through the interstate highway system, but long before interstates were the ways to connect disparate parts of the United States, a different system was in place. Quote, Route 66 had its official beginnings in 1926 when the Bureau of Public Roads launched the nation's first federal highway system, end quote. The plan for Route 66 and other roads of its type was to take several roads, quote, local, state, and national roads, end quote, and to create a sort of patchwork route with an official name that allowed travelers to follow the path from one end to another. Because of the route that Route 66 takes, connecting the Midwest to the Pacific Coast during the 20th century, many of the towns along Route 66 through the West saw the road as a golden opportunity. Quote, as the highway became busier, the roadbed received improvements in the infrastructure of support businesses, especially those offering fuel, lodging, and food that lined its right-of-way, expanded. End quote. Essentially, towns that nobody had ever heard of were suddenly on the map because everybody saw Route 66 as the great new thoroughfare to adventure. Small businesses were able to flourish thanks to this helpful new sign on the highway. When the Dust Bowl hit the American West and workers were looking to flee their drought-stricken homes, Route 66 offered them a path out. When the Second World War broke out and America got involved in 1941, servicemen and military transport would stop along these little towns on their way to other bases. When plants opened on the coast to support the war, folks in need of work took Route 66 to find opportunity like the 49ers did in search of gold a century earlier. But when the war ended and progress took its inevitable hold on the American industries, Route 66 struggled to stay alive. With that aforementioned interstate plan going into motion, there wasn't much need for the simplicity of Route 66 any longer. We had places to go, and we needed to get them much faster. Route 66 suddenly became a thing of the past, and it was decommissioned in 1985, a relic of a bygone era. Luckily, enthusiasts made their voices heard, and the original Route 66 is still preserved and protected by the National Park Service Route 66 Corridor Preservation Program, run by the Department of the Interior. Though it isn't exactly a national park, it sort of is, just a really long one. A road that requires our attention and care like so many other historic sites around the country. Where would we be as a country 
without Route 66. Well, if you follow the route today, follow it east from the Santa Monica Pier, something I'd love to do sometime, you'll find yourself in many distinct regions of the western United States. You'll hit Flagstaff by the Grand Canyon, you'll pass through Albuquerque and Amarillo, you'll go northeast through Tulsa and take a sharp turn through Kansas, you'll cross the mighty Mississippi River in St. Louis, Missouri, as you pass into Illinois. There you'll drive northeast, though mostly north, as you arrive to the other end of Route 66. What begins at the crashing waves of the Pacific Ocean at the Santa Monica Pier ends at the quiet water of one of America's great lakes, the astounding Lake Michigan, where the windy city Chicago resides. If you get a chance, you can see the sign for Route 66 outside the Art Institute of Chicago, where I visited just last weekend. Or you could buy a t-shirt from the diner where I had breakfast that day, Lou Mitchell's, which sold great pancakes alongside t-shirts denoting their proximity to the end of Route 66. Or if you happen to be traveling along Route 66 in the 1970s, you could have hopped on the train at Chicago's Union Station, which sits right along the last few miles of the original Route 66. Hop on a train called the Floridian and ride it south, and soon you'll be in the Sunshine State the Santa Monica Pier, to South Beach in Miami by way of Chicago, via road and via rail. That was the route 50 years ago, and that's the route we're taking today. Today, let's hop on board Florida's most failed train project, the cursed, the infamous Floridian. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. And this week, we're actually going to talk about just that, not a Floridian, that's me. We're going to talk about the Floridian, not a local to the state like myself, but rather a train that ran from Chicago to Florida 50 years ago, and the numerous failings of this bizarre, cursed train. This summer is our five-year anniversary for this podcast, and as this show began in 2018 on an episode about trains in Florida, it feels appropriate to head into our anniversary summer talking about the very same thing. So let's begin our journey in Chicago. Specifically Chicago, one weekend ago when I spent a surprisingly cold weekend in April in the Windy City in search of signs of home. Let's start with breakfast. Like I said, I had breakfast one Sunday in Chicago at a diner called Lou Mitchell's. My dad and I sat at the counter and we were given a donut hole to start our meal and an orange slice, which felt appropriate. Soon we had a parade of breakfast treats coming our way. Pancakes, bacon, ham, potatoes, eggs, and by the time we were on our way out, we didn't think we could walk to the art museum from the amount of food we had just inhaled. Nevertheless, we made our way to the Art Institute of Chicago where we spent the day wandering the beautiful galleries and finding topics for future episodes. I'm excited to do some more research into those, but en route to the museum, we found ourselves passing by an essential building in Chicago history, the Union Station. Opened in May of 1925, 98 years ago this month, the Chicago Union Station has become an essential part of train travel through the Windy City over the last century. If you're confused by its name, if perchance you've heard of any of the other buildings called Union Station around the country, you're not alone. That's actually because Union Station is more of a title that's been adopted as the names of these stations. It's actually a specific type of train station that can be found around the world. You see, nowadays, the prominent way to travel by train through the United States is via Amtrak. We'll talk about that more in a second. Amtrak runs through the Union Station now. But a century ago and earlier, different train lines were different companies. Think of Florida's rail history. Henry Plant, Henry Flagler, they were owners of separate train companies. They were in competition with one another. One was on the East Coast, one on the West, and they were constantly trying to expand. They worked as sort of rivals. Now, that was true all over the country. For other train lines, this was the same deal, especially when it concerned major cities, major hubs like Chicago. 
multiple train lines ran through or out of or to Chicago, all in competition of sorts with each other. The idea was, however, to create a centralized hub for these trains, one where people could go no matter which train line they were departing or arriving on. So sometime in the mid-1800s, the Union Station became a functioning part of the train industry in America. At the beginning of the 1900s in 1908, arguably the most famous Union Station was built in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., designed by an architect named Daniel Burnham. Look up all the things that Daniel Burnham designed, especially in Chicago. He designed the White City at the Chicago World's Fair. He designed the Flatiron Building in New York. He designed so many things. Well, he wanted to build a Union Station in Chicago as well. He was not able to see that come to fruition in his lifetime, but 13 years after he died... His vision came true, and Union Station opened in Chicago in 1925. It took 10 years to complete and a billion dollars in today's cash to construct, but it was a new hub for rail travel, and it allowed people more access to Florida, eventually. Quote, the station was built by a quote-unquote union of four railroads to accommodate the ever-expanding demand for passenger rail to and from Chicago. End quote. Now, keep that in mind. 1925, we're going to be talking a lot of history of rail in the next decades, like the few decades after this, it was so in demand in 1925, but very soon, within people's lifetime, by, by the 70s, that, that just was not the case anymore. Route 66 passes right by the Union Station, so the line connecting all of those western cities to Chicago and then on to everywhere else, it was extremely easy to imagine someone just traveling until their feet can't stand it anymore. They didn't have to walk anywhere. They could just take a car, get on a train, get anywhere, right? Same way we take planes now, but planes had not reached that sort of commercial availability at that point. This was considered the golden age of train travel. In a little over a decade, a train would depart from Chicago Union Station straight for the Sunshine State. It was called the South Wind, which is apt because that is directly where the wind was taking our travelers, straight south. But it was nowhere near the first train that brought Northerners down to Florida. No, in 1926, a year after the Chicago Union Station opened, the first of many iconic train lines opened that carried Northerners down to the state of Florida. This one was not launched from Chicago. No, this one was launched in New York City, and it was called the Orange Blossom Special. Look yonder coming, coming down that railroad track. Hey, look yonder coming. Coming down that railroad track It's the Orange Blossom Special Bringing my baby back that, my friends, is the legendary Johnny Cash, the man in black himself, one of my favorite singers of all time. The story of that song's origins is actually fascinating. We'll have to unpack it and talk about it more in a history episode all about the Orange Blossom Special because there's a lot more than just that song and what I'm going to tell you today. But the Orange Blossom Special was such an iconic train that the song came out nearly 40 years after the train first began services. 40 years! It had staying power. That's because the Orange Blossom Special was considered at the time one of the greatest trips that you could take in the United States. It was started by Solomon Davies Warfield, a hugely influential railroad executive and a rival to the Florida East Coast Railway founded by our friend Henry Flagler. Warfield saw that there was a real estate boom happening down in Florida in the 1920s, a boom that would soon go bust, but he saw that a train that ran from the north all the way down to the sunny shores of Florida was likely to bring in lots of cash. Vacation and tourism was on his mind as 
as well as those real estate opportunities that I mentioned, there was a lot that the Orange Blossom Special offered in terms of opportunity. It ran 1,400 miles along various routes and tracks all down the East Coast. Though it launched in February of 1926, it took a few years for the train line to expand all the way south to Miami, but when it did, it was a luxury high-speed rail experience unlike any other. High-speed, by the way, meaning that it took somewhere between 24 and 30 hours to reach your destination from New York to Florida. One advertisement from the Times states that you would leave New York at 1.35 p.m. and arrive in Miami at 4.10 p.m. the next day. Pretty good time for the era. But can I just say, one of my favorite parts of this era of train, I, I hate to interrupt myself, but I have to talk about this. One of my favorite things about trains in this era was they had names, they had identities. Easily the most famous train line in all of human history is the Orient Express. You've heard of the Orient Express, you know that name from the famous fictional murder that occurred on it, but you probably remember it too because the name is just very memorable. Well, in this golden age of rail travel, these names and the designs, the colors of these trains gave them like a like a persona, like they had a reputation, like oh, I'm, I'm taking the Orange Blossom special. It had a sort of flair to it. I just find it so incredible. Today, you know, you're taking the train down to Miami if, if you're taking that at all. But this had a style. It had a, a specific flair to it. And they made postcards for it. There were posters. There was so much branding around these trains. It's amazing. So you're not just taking a train to Florida. You're taking the Orange Blossom special. And there are some really incredible names through the years that are not necessarily going to Florida. I just have to read you some because I found a lot during the research and they cracked me up. Here's just a few. The Flying Yankee, the Whippoorwill, the Texas Eagle, the Lake Shore Limited. There was a whole set of trains running through Pennsylvania called the Fleet of Modernism. Is that that's amazing? There was the Rio Grande Zephyr, the Rocky Mountain Rocket, the San Joaquin Daylight, and perhaps the most famous is the Silver Comet, the Silver Meteor, and the Silver Star. All three ran on similar lines to the Orange Blossom Special, but they obviously ran to other locations. I just love that they they feel like superheroes, like celebrities, like collectibles, like I, you want to ride on them all. There's something really special about a train with a name, a color scheme, a reputation. What's your favorite? Because <laughs> honestly, I, I'm kind of liking, I kind of like the Rocky Mountain Rocket. It's fun to say. It's easy to say. So I just think that there's something really distinct about the, the, the imports that we put on trains at this time. Well, Chicago wanted in on the Orange Blossom special game, and they had a few ways to do it. In 1940, they launched their own fleet of trains that moved Midwesterners south to Miami, each with their own distinct persona. There was the Dixie Flagler, which ran for less than 20 years from Chicago to Miami until dying out in 1957. And then there was the pair of trains that ran from Chicago to Miami in a sort of back-and-forth pattern for decades. There was the City of Miami, appropriately named as well, and the South Wind. Both seven-car passenger trains, they'd make the trip from Lake Michigan to the peninsula of Florida for 30 years as other train lines came and went, as America changed around them, as train service became less and less of a necessity. The city of Miami and the south wind continued their back-and-forth pace. Chicago, Miami. Chicago, Miami. Until, that is, 1971. 52 years ago on this very day, May 1st, 1971. On that day, the train line called the city of Miami finally reached its end. The other train, the last survivor of the Chicago-Miami trains that began in 1940, was the South Wind. It would drop that name now. It would now become known as the infamous train of 1970s travel. Now, it was the Floridian.
just so you can get a feel for the reputation for the Floridian. Here is an article from a newspaper called Journal and Courier based out of Lafayette, Indiana from February 19th, 1977. The headline reads, Amtrak Floridian gets back on tracks. The body of the piece, written by one Judy Horak, reads, quote, Maybe the third time will be the charm for the Amtrak Floridian. Amtrak has made its third announcement about resuming daily service on the Chicago to Miami train line, and each announcement has included a different date, end quote. Apparently, snowy weather had prevented the Floridian relaunching, but the tone of that article tells the tale. The Floridian was a bit of a mess. Hence the title of this episode. Without even meaning it, the Floridian casually went from a reliable, if old, member of the train route system in this country to one of the most cursed trains of the 20th century. Here's the gist of what you need to know, the basics of the Floridian. It was indeed the same train as the Southwind, just rebranded. It became the Floridian because of that organization you've heard me mention a few times, Amtrak. If you know anything about trains, you know the name Amtrak. They are a massive passenger train company that has been around for 50 years. What you may not know is that they are, according to their own website, quote, a federally charted corporation with the federal government as majority stockholder, end quote. That sounds pretty dull, but it's actually very interesting. Amtrak was created by the government, and it is still in many ways owned by the government. In 1970, it was created to counteract the decline in profits for passenger trains across the country. If you've heard the term bailout when we talk about the country, this was kind of a bailout. The industry was flagging, and the government took over Amtrak. They, they actually sort of incorporated a bunch of these smaller lines into a company called Amtrak, and, and that's what exists today. See, all those fun-named trains that I talked about earlier, they were starting to lose a lot of business, and the government stepped in to keep the industry from collapsing entirely. Amtrak stepped in and took over. Hundreds of train routes closed, but hundreds of others remained in service, including the Southwind, now the Floridian. But Amtrak did not start the Floridian off on a good foot. Here's an article from a blog titled Amtrak in the Heartland. About the Floridian, they say this, quote, The Floridian would have one of the most tortured existences of any Amtrak train and route. Amtrak President Paul H. Rystrup told the Congressional Committee in 1977 that if ever there was a train destined to have difficulties, it was the Floridian due to slow travel time, bad track, and a meandering route, end quote. I'll tell you, I laughed out loud when I read that first sentence the first time. Tortured. <laughs> this train this train had a tortured existence. <laughs> what a shame. Okay, so here's just a few of the problems that the Floridian faced, right? It was supposed to go from Chicago to Florida in roughly 30 hours. That was the, the competition back in the day was doing that sort of thing. And this train was meant to do the same thing. Well, let's talk about what went wrong. The route for the Floridian changed a few times. It always was Chicago to Florida, but it moved its path in between point A and point B a few times. Notably, however, critics would complain that it would sort of miss pivotal locations between the two cities. Though it successfully passed through Louisville, Kentucky, and Nashville, Tennessee, it would miss major cities between Chicago and Miami like... It would miss Atlanta a lot in most of its routes for most of its runtime. It just didn't go anywhere near the most prominent city in the South, Atlanta, Georgia. In fact, at times, the original Floridian route just passed through and stopped at random towns in the South, towns that didn't really have a lot of customers that were trying to get on this train. Eventually, in 1977, they would reroute the Floridian to pass through Atlanta. An article in the Miami Herald from the time touts how much money would be brought in by the Atlanta route and that it would cut ride times from Chicago to Miami from 37 to 35 hours, a hilariously small margin of difference. But in that very same article, the Herald says, quote, because it loses so much money, 9.6 million last year, more than any other in Amtrak's fleet, the train is Amtrak's stepchild, end quote. Ouch. 
The president of Amtrak mentioned a moment ago, Paul Reistrub, he is then quoted as saying, quote, I have trouble getting our people interested in it. Sometimes I wonder if the people in Chicago know whether it's left or not, end quote. And now for the last bit of this article, which genuinely made me laugh out loud the first time I read it. It reads, quote, Dispatchers assign old coach cars to it. Heat and air conditioning units break down. Riders complain of stopped up toilets, bad food, and long delays, end quote. Then Rystrup is quoted one more time saying, quote, One stretch of track in South Alabama has no signals, so we have to run at 40 miles an hour. The highway traffic just breezes past, end quote. So the train at points was going even slower than traffic, which is the opposite of the point of riding a train in the first place. I don't know, folks. It's just it's just such a mess. It's such a mess that it is it is hilarious. This train had bad temperature, bad food, bad bathrooms, bad speed, bad quality of cars, and everyone kind of hated it. It seems like everyone at Amtrak was sick of this thing. But would you believe me that after this article came out in 1977, the train still ran for two more years? My, I mean, come on. It wasn't always so bad. In 1972, a piece in the Indianapolis Star describes a relaxing trip. Big coach seats you can settle into, fall asleep, a, a beautiful window with a view of nature passing by, bedrooms, hot meals. It's described here as, quote, a wonderfully relaxing way to begin a Florida vacation, end quote. But the 70s were not kind to the Floridian. The decline in quality came from train lines falling into poorer quality, which led to derailments. Quote, four derailments of the Floridian in Indiana in 1974, end quote. And troubles with scheduling led to less business. See, we don't travel by train much anymore. I've never crossed a state line in a train. So this next bit is foreign to me, but apparently scheduling when your train would leave from Chicago to Florida was difficult to figure out. Quote, was it better to travel two days and one night or to travel one day and two nights? Amtrak flip-flopped the schedule five times before settling on two night outs starting in January 1978. End quote. So basically, if it was two days, you'd sleep once on the train, but arrive at night to Miami, or sleep two nights and arrive the following morning. I think I'd choose that one. A morning in Miami sounds a little better. Get your footing, you know? I, I don't know. What would you do? The fact that it took until 1978 to settle that is just bad. Inconsistency and poor quality, it was all just falling apart. And it's not like Amtrak wanted to really keep this train running. They tried repeatedly throughout the 1970s to put the train out of its misery, but the public and Congress refused to let the train die. Every time they tried to close it, people would complain or the federal government would pressure them to give it one more try, but the Floridian never lived up to the standards of the South Wind before it. Back when it was the South Wind, this train traveled its route in just under 30 hours. The Floridian's best time was 34 hours, and that was at the very beginning of its travel. When the government decided to cut funding to Amtrak at the end of the 70s, the Floridian was the first out the door. And in 1979, the quote-unquote tortured existence was at an end. Which brings me to the article that really inspired this episode, a beautiful homage to the end of this train line, written for the Courier News in October of 1979 by Gene Polisinski. I must commend this article. It's a really good one. Here's one of the first paragraphs, quote, Amtrak's timetable said it was headed for Miami, but people aboard knew better. It was headed for the grave, end quote. And that's good writing. <laughs> Gene Polisinski breaks down why the train died. The amount of money lost to the Floridian was just insurmountable, and the bad massively outweighed the good. But he also points out that travel was changing. In the lineup of planes, trains, and automobiles, trains were on their way out. Gene writes, quote, in the end, it was a lingering death, a slow roll into history, end quote. 
Was that from a Hemingway novel or from an article about a bad train? There's no way to tell, really. But people, as people always are, were sentimental about the old train. Sure, they didn't need it as much as they used to, but when the post went up at the Floridian stops on October 1st, 1979, saying the train was at an end, people showed up to bid farewell. Quote, all along the route through Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, and Florida, trainmen and their families got on to ride one more time. End quote. A lot of the train staff, whether on the train or at the stations, would go on to try and work on other trains, though they all seemed to mourn the loss of their rickety, cursed train. The chief steward for the dining car goes unnamed, but they say, quote, I sure hate to see this train go. The people on it, who rode it, they were nicer than most. I guess they were happy because they were going someplace they wanted to go or they just had the time of their lives, end quote. This article has many folks blaming Amtrak for the death of the train, saying if they'd taken better care of it, it wouldn't have fallen into such poor condition in the first place. But no defense of the Floridian can turn back now. It was at the end of the line. Are you ready for the most bizarre fact that it just was dropped into the middle of this article? That there was no context at the time for them to know anything about who this person is that they're talking about, but history knows the name that we're about to mention. So I'll just read it for you verbatim and we'll talk about it. Quote, about 15 miles north of Birmingham, Alabama, the Floridian made one last gesture to the history books. For the first time on the route, a southbound train stopped to meet the northbound version of the Floridian heading to Chicago. The meeting was to transfer a group of rail fans, including Representative Albert Gore Jr., Democrat of Tennessee, who had boarded at Nashville for a last ride. End quote. If you recognize the name, that's Al Gore. They call him Albert Gore Jr. in this, but Al Gore, like literally Al Gore, vice president to President Bill Clinton. Al Gore, who famously lost the 2000 presidential election to George Bush with a controversial result from our state, from Florida. Al Gore, who brought climate change to the American public. That Al Gore, he was just randomly on the Floridian on its last day. He was there to bid farewell to this unusual train. That's just completely bizarre to me. Anyway, just a, a, one of those amazing, incredible facts uh, of history that you just can't get rid of. This bit of the article about Al Gore switching between the North and South train, it includes one last beautiful detail. That as the two versions of the train passed each other, one going North, one going South, the employees of both trains pulled open the doors and chatted with each other, sharing love and affection with their alternates, the other half of the Floridian crew. As the trains rolled away from one another, who knew if they would ever see each other again? They once shared a train line, now no more. As the last Floridian finished its route to Florida, the conductor had a plan. Let's bring the train in early. The plan was a success. It arrived five minutes early at 1.25 p.m. Quote, it was a quiet arrival with no ceremony and no eulogy. End quote. The article concludes on a solemn goodbye as the crew departs, the passengers move on, and the train is left alone. The last paragraph of this article reads as such, quote, And then there was only the train empty in the midday Miami sun, its engine still thrumming heavily, finished at the end of its run. End quote. If that is not a eulogy, I don't know what is. Gene didn't hear a eulogy at the time, so he wrote one himself. It's been 44 years since that train met its demise. Today, it takes even longer than the Floridian at its worst to take a train from Chicago to Miami. The day of speedy cross-country train travel is long gone, though interstate train travel is finding new life as the Brightline train, the topic that started this podcast five years ago, is finally expanding. 
Soon you can travel from Orlando to Miami in just a few hours. Story we'll talk about more this summer as we finally circle back to our very first topic. But the times where trains like the Orange Blossom Special, the South Wind, the City of Miami, and the Floridian could bring you from north to south in one beautiful, luxurious train line, those days are gone. America just evolved. But I can't get past one anecdote. I can't get it out of my head from that article. It's about how happy everyone was on the train. Friendlier than most, that's how they were described. That's what they said. Whether it was anticipation for Florida or enjoyment of it, Florida led to people on our namesake train being in a good mood. Love that. Makes me hopeful for that to come back. Especially at a time when it feels like Florida is spoken with hesitancy, with concern, with weight on it. At a time when people are actively leaving Florida because they don't feel safe, their families don't feel safe. At a time when Florida does not carry that sort of inherent sunshine just in the prospect of visiting as it did 40 years ago. At a time when Florida has garnered a reputation that I don't think anybody wants. It doesn't have to be that way. We were a place for everyone once and I hope that one day we can be a place for everyone again. It brings me great comfort to know that even though the Floridian was run down, losing steam, failing to maintain itself, the people on board didn't seem to mind it too much, at least according to the crew. No, they didn't mind at all. They were going to Florida. What could be better than that? What could be better than that? Thank you so much for listening to this finale episode of this spring season of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. I'm so glad you boarded the Floridian with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, if you want to share it with someone else, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps the show grow. It means a lot to me. And you can tell me what you enjoy about this show. You can also share this episode. I think it's a pretty good episode to share with listeners who've never heard the show before. This captures the essence, I think, of what makes this show so special. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at WFMPod. You can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I will include some links about this episode's topic, about these various train lines, especially to Amtrak and the Heartland. Very, very helpful resource about this train and the trains that ran through Amtrak. Go check that website out. I will also include a link to the song used in this episode. I do not own the rights to that song, but I wanted you to hear it. Go give it a listen. Listen, Johnny Cash is always a good listen. <laughs> All the music besides that song was originally composed. All right, folks, that is it for this spring season. I have had such a wonderful springtime talking to you about all these topics, and it has been a great comfort to me the last couple months to bring some very important topics to your attention and to spend some time talking about the good things. Spring break in particular was such a wonderful time. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. But... This summer is the fifth year anniversary of this show. I've got some surprises up my sleeve, some visits I cannot wait to share with you, some topics that I've been wanting to talk about for a very, very long time. This summer is going to be a very, very special one. So I will see you in June when we begin our summer season talking about topics extremely important to Florida life. We're going to begin in June visiting Sanibel Island. Very special place to me. So we can talk a little bit about what's been going on down there. And we're going to talk about so many important topics to Florida. This summer is going to be a nostalgic one, honestly, to remember some of the wonderful things I've gotten to do with this show and to look to the future of what this show can hold for years to come. So I will see you next summer. I hope you have a wonderful May. I will see you in the beginning of June. Until then, 
Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Drink more water. And most importantly, we're going to keep saying this. Go Gator and muddy the water. Have a great May. I will see you in June.